Thanks everyone for joining us today. I'm Jeff Champion Risk, Professional Practice Principal at ASACA. Joining me today to talk about his recently released article, Managing Cybersecurity Risk as an Enterprise Risk, is the Manager of Cybersecurity Advisory Service for Cyber Defense Labs, Tom Snyder. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. Thanks, thanks for having me. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure, I've worked in IT uh, about 40 years at this point, and um, over the last 20 transitioned from uh, doing some programming and system programming into uh, the security realm. Currently working for Cyber Defense Labs, where we're doing, um, I'm on a team that does a lot of security assessments. The primary tool we use for those is in this cybersecurity framework. That's kind of my uh, career in a nutshell, very small nutshell. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty extensive career. Yeah, yeah, been a while now. So uh, uh, as far as the assessment goes, are those uh, part of an audit or? Uh, no, they're more really to give organizations kind of an insight into how they're managing cybersecurity and to kind of see what kind of team and, and resources they've got built up to support it. Interesting. I have another question for you. Um, what do some of the recent proposed changes from Security and Exchange Commission and the U.S. Federal Commission say about the expectations of enterprise leaders when it comes to security risk? Yeah, so um, there's been some uh, rulemaking changes for the FTC that have been formalized. And then the Security Exchange Commission, they've proposed some changes that are still, uh, still under discussion and haven't been completed yet. Both of those are really tending towards looking for more more participation from the board of directors and senior management and their oversight of cybersecurity. So um, in particular, the SEC has proposed some changes that would be included in the 10K reports, which public companies need to provide annually. Those are typically just published on their website. So it uh, gives investors information about the company and um, kind of the business environment that they're operating in and, and the company's prospects. So. What the SEC is proposing get added to the 10K report are um, information about policies and procedures, especially around managing cybersecurity risk. And then uh, for cybersecurity governance, what the board of directors doing to provide oversight. And then management's role in implementing the policies and procedures that have to do with managing cybersecurity risk. And then also disclosing information about the board of directors cybersecurity expertise. And the the other thing they proposed is um, requiring any disclosures for um, cybersecurity incidents on a particular schedule. And that's the disclosure of incidents has proved to be kind of the most controversial one of the proposals. So that one's the one I think that's drawn the most attention. But these other changes, they really point towards an expectation that management and the board of directors are more involved in the oversight of cybersecurity. And then for the Federal Trade Commission, they've updated their safeguards. That was done early in 2022. Those are going to be in effect in December of this year. So by December of this year, organizations are supposed to be complying with those changes. And those have to do with a number of controls around cybersecurity, which are kind of just standard things like access management, risk management, multi-factor authentication, various kind of just basic cybersecurity hygiene controls. 
And then sort of the m more interesting thing is it requires organizations to have what's called a qualified individual, which is kind of a CISO-like role, but not necessarily someone with that title. And then that qualified individual is supposed to report to the board of directors, at least annually, on the status of the security program for the organization. So those are, from a regulatory aspect, kind of the big big changes that that the article covers. Well, I can definitely see that um, with the qualified individual, I can definitely see due care, and that would definitely um, be able to be a better responding back to the board and leaders with the necessary information. Probably data analytics, which they're probably doing most likely when they get feedback. That, that could be for larger organizations. For smaller organizations, I think the expectation is just kind of a written report that gives the current state of the program and kind of insights into what changes need to be made to to better secure the environment, especially in light of the controls that the FTCs are written into their safeguards. Interesting. What are some of the main ways leaders should be more proactive um, when overseeing a security program? One thing I think that's called out by both, both of these changes would be for the board of directors and, and management to have some level of expertise in cybersecurity. And if the particular directors or the, the upper management of an organization doesn't have that, then engaging consultants or some other resource that can help provide that to them. And then beyond that, it's really looking at there being policies, procedures in place, there being some plan to manage security in the environment. And then I think the other thing are um, just kind of having the resources in place that are necessary. So that would be both people and then the funding for uh, tools and training to make those resources effective. I agree. I agree. And with that being said, because I'm a big, I'm a big fan of uh, the risk management frameworks, what are the ways that risk management frameworks you think that they could be most effective? So the enterprise risk management frameworks that uh, the article speaks to are the COSO enterprise risk management, so COSO ERM, and then from ISO, the ISO 31000 framework. While both of those are, there's differences in those, there's a lot of commonality between them as well. Some of the things that kind of jump out to me, both of those are looking for there to be oversight essentially from the upper management of the organization. So again, the board and the senior senior management. And then they're also looking for there to be like organizational structures in place that would help support enterprise risk management. So that could be risk management staff and then the policies and procedures that the firm would use to report on, on enterprise risk. They also look at there being kind of a culture within the organization that supports enterprise risk management, and then also having the necessary resources. So again, the staff and if needed funding for, for tools. So those would be like facilities or capabilities that the enterprise risk management programs would be looking to be in place to help support enterprise risk management. And then I think from a cybersecurity perspective, once there's an ERM program in place, you would look for that to manage cybersecurity related risk. And then the other thing that I think is interesting is really all, all those features that need to be in place to manage enterprise risk. They're really similar to um, capabilities that need to be in place as far as managing cybersecurity risk itself. So again, 
the board needs to be involved. Senior management needs to be emphasizing the importance of managing cyber risk. And then you need to have um, necessary resources in place to, to be able to implement a program as well. Why are the risk treatment plans useful and who, who, who do you think should oversee them um, as far as their creation and implementation? So I, ideally, I think the risk treatment plans would be overseen by the, the enterprise risk management program, so whoever's running that. But then I think one of the important benefits of having a, a treatment plan is having an owner assigned to it so that there's one person who's really accountable and responsible for overseeing the progress on that plan. So that would be a person to um, kind of drill down on what's needed, assuming there's some kind of mitigation that needs to be put in place, what's needed to make that mitigation effective, and then having some timelines that are they're being managed. So if there's interim steps along the way, what are the dates for those to be accomplished? And then you know, what's the target date for the plan to be implemented overall? And then that person too should be responsible for kind of keeping track of the plan and to be able to report to the enterprise risk management team and to senior management about the progress that's being made and if there are any issues along the way that need to be addressed. Yeah, that's a good example. That's a really good example. To circle back, do you think the board members should have cybersecurity background? Because I, I really think that will help to like have some expertise when um, the CISO reports to them. So that's a, that's a good question. So the proposed changes for the SEC, they're not at this point necessarily requiring the board to have cybersecurity expertise. They would be requiring the organization to identify like in the 10K and other reports, if that kind of expertise exists for the organization. And I think the end result of that kind of change would be to um, ensure that there is in fact more expertise either in terms of directors that are serving on the board, or if those directors don't currently have that expertise, then engaging consultants that can meet with the board to provide it. Because ultimately, if, if organizations have to report on the cybersecurity expertise that their directors have, if they don't have it on staff currently, that's potentially kind of a downside to investors if they're, if they're looking to put money into the organization. So I think it's going to encourage the boards to add that expertise and make sure that it's on hand. So aside from the board piece, what's the most important ingredients for an organization to place to manage cybersecurity risk? Well, I think having the enterprise risk management program is important. And then again, if you go through either of the two frameworks, COSO or ISO, they're really looking for there to be you know, support from the top of the organization. So the board, senior management, they're looking for the structures to be in place within the organization. So there's ways to report on risk, ways to manage risk, um, ways to identify risk. And then they're also looking for there to be the resources available that can be used to um, effectively manage and mitigate risk and, and to track it over time. Besides those kind of high level oversight functions, the other things really that both of the frameworks provide are kind of some guidance on uh, what needs to be included in, in the program to manage risk. So things like identifying threats, cataloging risks for the organization, determining the uh, severity of those risks so you can prioritize how you're going to approach treating them. And then again, having a way to, to track those over time and to be able to report on them. 
Yeah, I agree with that also. With that being said, how do organizations truly know if their risk management program is effective? Because, you know, sometimes you've probably seen it in, um, before where they're in companies and they have a risk management program, but some, you can see it managed incorrectly. As far as determining effectiveness, I think part of that's going to be resolved through the reporting process. So, and again, I think that goes back to there being a certain level of expertise within management and the board. In terms of cybersecurity risk, you know, if the if if there is cybersecurity expertise in those groups, then when the reports come up, there's going to be the ability to interpret those and see how realistic or or unrealistic the reports are. And kind of something we haven't talked about, but it bundled into all this is some understanding of risk appetite for the organization and then around that like tolerance ranges. So uh, when a risk has exceeded a, a tolerance range that some additional uh, remediation or treatment needs to be applied or it's gone below the, the lower threshold of the tolerance range, at which point the, the risk is effectively accepted. So. If those kind of parameters are put in place, that's going to also help to uh, address the ability to to figure out if the program's being effective at, at managing risk inside of those parameters. Yeah, I agree with that because um, I used to work for a company where we had some risk that we would we would accept, even some risk um, we had to transfer off to the server owner. Before we close, do you have any final comments? The article, there's really like kind of three sections in it. The first talks about the new regulations. And then it also just talks about how like ransomware has kind of elevated the cybersecurity risk to an enterprise issue. Uh, then it kind of moves on and talks about the two enterprise risk range frameworks and how those could be applied to cybersecurity. And then a final thing, it talks about this um, major security incident that, at the Health Security Exchange of Ireland. There's a couple reports out on that. There's one that was commissioned by the HSE that they posted on their website. There's another one that came out through CISA, I believe it was. There's a U.S. government report that kind of just is maybe like a 10 or 15 page presentation. It just highlights elements from the, the, the big report that HSE commissioned. What I think is interesting about those, again, is they really kind of just tie back to these first two points. If you're not really taking like an enterprise approach to cybersecurity and trying to manage the risk around cybersecurity at enterprise level, it just kind of points to all the things that can go wrong. That makes sense. One question I thought was interesting, but by, by some of the information that they make public, would that make the companies more vulnerable? Sometimes I see it like if you say like like a playbook sometimes of how to hack. Uh, that's, you know, that's a good question. I think the thing is, for the most part, most of the talented adversarial organizations probably have as much or more information as most all of the organizations that are on the defensive side. And certainly I think, you know, like a state actor or a really dedicated adversarial team is going to have as much information as your average corporation is. So I would say for the most part, making defensive information widely available is really to the benefit of those of us that are on the defensive side, because I think for the most part, those are things that the adversaries already know about. That's an interesting point. I want to circle back a little bit. 
when the um, CISOs, they provide a written report, how often would they have to provide that written report? I, I know within the FTC requirements, the FTC safeguards, that report's required to be an annual report. As boards gain more expertise and as CISOs get more comfortable meeting with the boards, I would expect that in most cases, the board of directors is probably wanting to hear about cybersecurity, probably on a quarterly basis or certainly probably semi-annually. I would think the more they know about it, the more they're the more they're going to want to hear about it, and the more frequently they're wanting to get those updates. Yeah, I'm a big fan of data analytics. I've worked with um, doing Power BI and providing those type of analytics back back to the board. Yeah, I would say, you know, any kind of analytics, any kind of numbers that are going to at least be easily digestible at a board level are certainly going to be helpful because that's going to put more context where it's not just a, a statement or kind of a fear factor or, you know, a sky is falling scenario, but then there's actually numbers that are going to be able to be digested. And, and that's also going to help, I think, to frame a risk within some kind of tolerance range so you can see if it's exceeded what determining to be uh, allowable or if it's, you know, something that's within a range that you've, that the organization's determined is, is acceptable. Yeah, definitely a tolerance range that's acceptable. Um, I want to um, go back to one other thing also is one other question as far as like the controversy of for the requirements for the breach. Why did it cause controversy? I was just curious. I think the main issue there is if I remember correctly, the proposal from the SEC is requiring notification within 24 hours. I know the controversy is primarily focused around the time frame, as far as I understand it. And I believe that was 24 hours was the initial proposal. So I think there were concerns there about, you know, how is that really feasible to be able to give a reasonable report within 24 hours? I think other concerns were trying to report within that amount of time frame could potentially tip off the attackers if the, if the attack isn't really contained very well. So I think there were a number of concerns about how quickly the notification was going to be required. Yeah, that's an awfully quick turnaround time. Thank you, Tom, for joining me again. Sure, Jeff. Thanks for, for having me here. Please click the description below to read Tom's full article. It's fantastic. It's a good read. I'm Jeff Champion. Thank you for tuning in.